I'd like to welcome you to this Verb Readers and Writers Festival event. Um, my name's Pip Adam, um, and I guess I just want to start by saying thank you so much for this book um, by Claire Maletta, Unsheltered. This book um, has a lot of hope in it, has a lot of love in it, and um, I think is just a magnificent, magnificent um, piece of writing, and I'm extremely grateful that you have written it. And to begin with, I thought that I would invite you to read from it so that we can get the words in the room. Kia ora. Thanks, Kate. Kia ora, Pip. I'm going to read something from early on in the book. At this point, um, Lee and her daughter Matty are living in a temporary camp called mate, a mate camp, which is outside a fence, really big, long fence. And inside that fence is a big area of wasteland, which is a really dangerous place to be, but is also potentially somewhere where you might find food. And beyond that wasteland, out of sight, is another really, really big wall. And inside that wall is the place everybody's trying to get to. And they're trying to get there any way they can. The first time Lee went across, it was just before dawn. She'd warned Matty the night before that she was going, told her to stay in the tent as long as she could after she woke and then look for Suleiman's parents or Shayla's in the food queue and stand with them so she wouldn't get pushed out. The kids' tent usually opened around 10. If she wasn't back by then, that's where Maddie had to wait for her. Maddie had taken a long time to fall asleep, but she didn't wake when Lee left and Lee didn't look back. The no-go was sand and scrub and stringy bark, noisy now with the early racket of birds. The kind of country that tricked you into thinking it was flat. Once she went over the first low rise and lost the fence from her sightline, everything took on a different scale. The night's condensation pulled up the smells of earth and leaf and salt. Smells that were in the camp too, but masked by cooking and fires and bodies and mould, untreated sewerage. There was spore everywhere, signs of rabbits, roos, feral dogs and cats, pigs too. She was going to need a knife. She moved in spurts at first, tree to tree, on high alert for vehicles or human movement. But there was just the occasional sound of a truck out on the highway to Sumud, and once an XB force vehicle inland moving away into the hills. On the other side of those hills, she knew, was the XB, the actual wall. It felt as distant now as it had been before they crossed the gulf. She laid the first few snares a few kilometres from mate camp and got back to Matty before the food queue started moving. Matty hugged her quickly and held her hand all the way to the front. When Lee went back across early the next morning, there were two rabbits in her snares. The third time, she went late in the day and took Matty with her. The sooner she knew how to get her own food, the better. But things started going wrong before they were even across. Maddie had told Shayla and Suleiman to meet them at the fence, had promised they could learn too. Lee saw them waiting, serious and expectant, for this sanctioned adventure in the no-go and sent them packing. Telling two kids was like telling half the camp. She tried to stay calm in the face of Maddie's fury, explain what she should have understood, but in the end she had to shove her under the fence. Walking wasn't a problem for Maddie after the weeks on the road to Valiant. And she was already used to watching out for XB force. She was good at spotting spore too, once she forgot to be mad. 
Lee sent her up a tree after a bird snare and was reassured by the sprung, economical way her child climbed. But the dead honey eater was harder for Maddie than Lee had expected. And when they found a young rabbit still struggling in the last snare, she cried and wanted to take it back to camp alive. You could patch her, she said. Lee showed her the mess of its leg, told her that letting it live would be cruel as well as stupid. When she broke its neck, Matty beat her with her fists and shouted at her, out there in the open, still not dark. Lee had to slap her quiet. She crouched in the bushes, holding her still, and listened until she guessed they were safe. She could feel Maddie's outraged breathing, her strong, skinny body struggling to contain it, and she regretted the force of the slap. I'm not listening, Maddie growled. So Lee talked to the back of her child's head in the dusk, told her that she had to look after them both, trade for what they needed and teach Maddie to do it for herself. That was more important than the rabbit. You're just saying that because you're a human. If you had a baby rabbit, how would you feel? They'd raised a kid who could think like this because until a few months ago she'd never gone hungry. I don't know, she said. I don't have a baby rabbit. I have a bean sprout. And she heard the wrongness of it, the trespass. Dad had a bean sprout, Maddie said, not you. Walking back to mate camp after dark, they were quiet. The moon lit their way patchily between scuds of cloud. Lee was thinking she'd been wrong to bring Maddie. It had been too soon. Maddie had already made her first snares and it would be easier now that Lee could trade for more flexible wire. She'd make her practice until it was second nature. She'd teach her to skin and gut the kill, how to cut the bladder out without contaminating the meat, how to check the heart and liver for signs of disease. Their trade would be worthless if people got sick from it. Maddie was smart and she was quick. Lee would bring her out again, just not straight away. Mum, Maddie said. This was a new thing since the boat. Before that, she'd only been mum when Maddie wanted something. Otherwise, she was Lee and Frank had been dadder and then dad. Mum, see the jumpers? They were near the fence now, parallel to the highway. Lee saw the headlights coming and pulled Maddie down, but Maddie was looking at something closer, a brief flaring of torches, shapes moving in the roadside scrub on the other side of the fence. The truck was almost on them, gears shifting down as it began the uphill stretch. They stayed low and watched the jumpers swarm the road, leaping, clawing, climbing. They went for the sides, the tailgate. They tried to pull themselves under the moving vehicle. Maddie was still and attentive in Lee's arms. One of the figures turned to pull someone up behind them and lost their grip and fell. I'm going for the kids, Maddie whispered, because they're faster. The truck picked up speed and the jumpers fell back. They walked or limped into the scrub and out of sight. But a few of them stayed, crouching beside bodies on the road. Lee listened to them crying in the dark and held on to Maddie like it was only her arms keeping her clear of the wheels. Thank you so much, Claire. Um, the blur for this event um, talks about the potential of parenting as a driver for exceptionally good fiction. And I was wondering if maybe we could start... Um, I just want to ask you what you think the potential is for parenting in fiction. I guess the potential for it in, in, in a lot of ways is just the potential for any 
any incredibly strong relationship. You know, anything that's fierce and complicated and enduring has got great, you know, it's got great potential for, for telling stories. But when I had a kid, I felt I sort of looked to books for the, the things that I was experiencing and I, I, I didn't... I struggled to find them. I struggled to find the kind of parent that seemed real to me. And, of course, they're out there. I'm, maybe I'm just not well-read enough. But I, I looked and I, and I did find all kinds of other representations of, of parents and particularly mothers that just seemed bizarre to me. And I, I suppose I was just paying more attention, which is usually what happens, right? Something affects you and then you start going, oh, you know. Um, but I just found the way that mothers were represented, not just in a lot of fiction but in a lot of in culture, in the world generally, it's just seemed bizarre to me. Um, you know, like somehow there's this just unstoppable force of goodness that's just unbottled when you reproduce and then, you know, <laughs> and then everything's fine. And I I don't know, I didn't, I didn't recognise that. You know, it seems like it was at least more complicated than that. And so I, I wanted to... I couldn't really write for a few... I didn't have a lot of time to write for a while, but I kept looking for that and I kept trying to think about a parent. And, I mean, I just went for a mother because I was doing a lot of things and I didn't know that I was quite up to the task of trying for a father, but I don't think it would be particularly different. I just wanted to... I don't know. I wanted to show something, something complicated and uncertain... Um, because uncertainty seemed like one of the biggest things about parenting. You know, it's so it's it's big and it's full of mistakes and it's full of doubt, and all of that seems like good potential for for fiction. Um, and yeah, and also I think I was just a bit irritated by, and I'm not even particularly talking about books, but some of those representations that seemed so glib and. And I think that's possibly that's possibly the trap in the potential of, of parenting, of writing about it, is that it's, you know, this is a great love and we will do wonderful things and, you know, we will sacrifice ourselves and stuff, you know. Yeah, I, I, I guess I thought there was more to it and that, that gave it legs. Mm, yeah. Well, one of the interesting things about the structure of the book is that you um, have a mother who is without a child for, um, I don't think that's a spoiler, but, you know, you, you do have a mother who is without a child for a large part of the book. And there's this incredible thing where Lee carries this book often um, by herself. And I was thinking one of the cheap tricks I often use is to give someone someone to talk to, if you know what I mean, like so they can externalise. And I, I'm just wondering... What did you learn about sort of giving the task of the book to, or did it affect the way the book's structured? Like, I think we've talked about the way that you use memory in yeah. here. And I've always loved, I love, that's one of the things I love about the book is that it, you get this very real sense of walking into the past rather than, you know, the memory being backstory or anything. But yeah, what... I guess I, I'm not as much interested in why that decision was made, but more after that decision was made, how did you let the book, um, you know, how did you let her carry that book? Oh, with great difficulty. Um, <laughs> because I guess, 
you know, you don't necessarily decide. I did know at the start that th there was going to be a lot of time in this book where some where a woman was walking on her own, really unhappy and suspicious and having bad memories, you know, which didn't necessarily sound like something someone else would want to read. So I kind of had to <laughs> think, well, how can I, you know, there'll be some laughs, there might not be a whole lot of laughs, but how can I at least make it something that somebody would want to read? Because I like things happening, I like action, I like, um, yeah, I like that stuff. I like plot. Um, and I, I didn't think through for a while the ramifications of, of her just being there walking so much of the time, because there was I had so many, there was so much backstory. There were so many things that I wanted to bring across. But of course, that's just a nightmare to write. You know, trying to move in and out between time frames and trying not to get stuck in what's that? I think there was a Charlotte Wood came and talked to us during the MA year when I, when I wrote the book with some of these people who were sitting here. Um, and she talked to us, she said something like, beware the cul-de-sac of reflection. You know? <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, well, I don't want to go there. Um, but you've also got that thing of, well, I worked out that it was, you know, close third person, that I was going to be very close to this character and she was going to sort of filter the story for people. And so, of course, what that means is you can only know what she knows um, and what she's ready to think about. And so I had to find ways to have her think about things that I needed to tell, you know, that I needed to convey. Um, and I needed her, what she remembered, to also somehow tell the story or illuminate things from the story. And so, I mean, I did... Every now and then I just go, well, she's got to talk to somebody now. You know, this is just ridiculous. Like, and so I did have to kind of keep thinking about ways that I could introduce other characters. Um, but I think maybe as she kind of evolved, she, you know, she was more and more that kind of character. You know, she was somebody who kept to herself. She wasn't very good at talking to people. Um, and she had a lot to think about. So I, I guess trying to combine that with lots of, at times, quite explosive events... Um, that was sort of how I found my way through it. But I definitely I definitely had lots of times writing it thinking, oh, my God, who... We need another person, you know. Like, I need another person. I need to, you know, I need to write another person as well. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was just that kind of story, but it, I don't think I could have sustained it, yeah, without occasional interruptions. <laughs> and it's so interesting because you talk about Lee's development and I think that's one of the real pleasures of the book is that, um, you know, when you say you need a new person, often Lee is a new person yeah, in different right. situations, yeah. which I think is just magnificent. Um, on the face of it, um, the elevator pitch for this book is dark and sad, but for me this is an incredibly hopeful book as well. I just wonder about the place of kindness in the book. Um, yeah, I that came by accident and I think I worked out that I think more about people than I realised I did um, because I... First of all, I don't see this as a futuristic story or really a climate change story or, or anything. Um, but the world that's presented, I suppose I, I see a lot of it as, as here now, maybe just not for all of us. And I, I suppose what I was thinking about all the way through, especially because I had a character who I think, I think you're right, I don't think she's the same person at the end, but certainly to begin with and for quite a lot of the book, 
is deeply suspicious of other people's intentions and doesn't trust human nature and hasn't had much reason to. And sometimes she's right, but mm. she's often wrong. And I, one of the things I loved writing was the scenes where she's wrong and she, she makes things so much harder for herself by assuming the worst of everyone, you know, or waiting to see what the catch is or what's in it for them, you know, because it is kind of a transactional world. Um, I guess I think if this is the world that we're in, or a lot of these things are happening, whether it's forced migration or the weather getting worse or, you know, widening inequalities, how, we, how are we in that? How are we going to be in that? And I, I'm thinking about this conversation that, I had with with Elizabeth, at, who who was one of the early readers for the book, and who said something that hadn't really occurred to me. She said to me, "This isn't dystopian. It wasn't a misanthropic view of the world." That she sort of said, "Look, there's so many points in this book where people, where there's nothing in it for people mm. to help, but they help." And I hadn't really thought about that because I didn't really think about it when I was writing it. But that made complete sense to me because actually, that's my experience too. Is that of course there are people in bad situations who behave badly. There are people who behave badly in any situation. Mm. But in my experience, more of the time, if someone can help, they will. And more of the time, that's people who don't have much power, um, who were the people I was interested in in this book. And, And also I thought that there were lots of versions of family in the story. And I, I didn't think that Lee was looking for family in any mm. overt way, but she, a lot of the people she encounters are in different kinds of family or whānau groupings and there's different versions of kindness that play out through that. Um, and it just just made sense to me. I mean, I think that is, that is the hope. I think um, people will often behave in the best way they can when things are really bad. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. when there's nothing in it for them at all. And I think, you know, one of the one of the things I was thinking while reading it is how I've been trained um, by other reading experiences. You know, like I was suspicious. And I think in a lot of ways my journey was with Lee as well. You know, I'm like, well, what's in it for them? You know, and I think that you do an astounding job of sort of undoing some of that learning. The book does an incredible job of building world in a way that, I, I'm not totally sure, but I might change my mind about this tomorrow, but it seems to leave a lot to the reader. What did you learn about what you can leave to the reader and what you want to sort of maintain a little bit of control over while you're writing? Well, one thing I learned, and there are some people in this room who know this really well, <laughs> one thing I learned is that I, my natural state as a writer is to withhold. I want to leave a lot to the reader because as a reader I, I want a lot of space. Mm. And I know some people hate that and, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know. But it, it felt to me like lots of things in the book that even I thought were really clear I think haven't been clear because, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I uh, – when I was ten I got – my parents gave me a copy of The NeverEnding Story for Christmas and I read that book every year for years and I've still got that copy. And the first time I went back and read it, as an, ah, oh, and I think it was when I read it to my kid for the first time, which was only a couple of years ago. I was really startled by that really obvious thing about how much I'd made up that wasn't in the book. Mm. You know how you, you know, there's so many stories like that, so many books like that. And I remembered it as this quite almost florid sort of book, you know, with these incredibly intense worlds in it. 
but a lot of them I'd, I'd just made up. And that was fantastic, you know, that thing of reader meeting writer. Um, and so I, I definitely wanted that because a lot of the backstory of this world to me is very obvious. Well, not obvious, but, you know, I mean, there's just a couple of ways things can go and I wasn't trying to say anything deeply original about any of that. So to have sort of spelled things out in that sense would have seemed really pointless and a bit maybe insulting to readers. One thing that I thought was really interesting um, is that I didn't know how it was going to end all the way through, which was, as it turns out, a great way to write it, but kind of a scary way to write it. Um, I really didn't know until... I think I knew when I started the last chapter, but I'm somewhere in there. Um, and so I was in a constant state of, of uncertainty through the book. And um, and, then I f and then I worked out what happened. I decided what happened. And so I thought, well, I'll say what happens because I know and I don't want to pointlessly withhold, you know. <laughs> and a couple of people also said to me, you've, you've taken people on quite a long, hard journey, so don't you dare not tell them <laughs> what happens, you know. And so I thought I did, um, but I obviously didn't because, <laughs> I, I mean, it's just really interesting. I've, I've heard th three different, mm. quite different versions of the ending from people who are all really sure about that. And, of course, then that's the ending, you know, that those are the endings. But that was really surprising. It's like, oh, I, I could have been ambiguous, but I thought I wasn't. <laughs> so I think even sometimes when you don't think you're leaving it to the reader, you are because you you bring what you bring as a reader mm. and you'll, you know, I know I've done that as a reader too, you know, I've, I've possibly ridden right over quite obvious signposts because I'm sure mm. and then that's fine, that's, that's how it is. There is something incredibly inviting about the prose. It takes you on the journey, if you know what I mean, and I'm just wondering around this idea of language that isn't afraid to be clear-spoken. That's the other thing that I think is interesting, you know, like... Sometimes I feel like um, I have to hide behind, you know, big words or something. But, yeah, I just wonder if you've got any thoughts on that. Um, editing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, self-editing. I mean, also, towards the end, really great editing from other people. But I, I massively overwrite. Um, I don't know if I overwrite in a in a flowery way. That's never that's not my intention. Mm. Um, but certainly, I cut and cut and cut and cut. And I look at the book now, and I know most people, you know, most writers have this experience. But it's new for me. I look at it and go, oh, <laughs> I mean, I cut things when I read that. You're like, I didn't need any of that. <laughs> yeah. And I think possibly that's where. I mean, I don't know. I don't. You know, it's my words, so I don't really know. But maybe that's where some of that stuff comes from because um, quite often I'll put down three versions of something and then get myself back to one. It would be really great to be able to do it the other way. It would be quicker. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it, isn't, it isn't how I write. Um, but also I love – I'm repeating myself now – but I love plot. I love action. Mm. I love things happening in books. Mm. And when I, when I went to write it, there were a number of things I was very intentional about wanting to try and do but one of them was to write a book that had a plot and characters and action. I wanted to write action scenes. Mm. Um, none of those things were things that I thought I knew how to do at all. I, Yeah, I'd written sort of short stories that were quite short and were sort of about an idea that I had and then I'd write them and then I'd go, well, that's the end of the idea. Um, 
and and I'd spent years writing a uh, writing a book for kids that didn't get published, but I think possibly I stealthily taught myself something about writing plot and character and action through writing that book. Mm. I don't know that I succeeded in doing it very well, but when I when I started to write this one, um, it seemed a bit easier, and I was really focused on that the whole way through. That I wanted. I wanted people to keep reading and I didn't want to sort of bury them in in language or description. I mean, of course, there's both language and description in the book, but, you know. <laughs> um, this is a sneaky question that I'm asking totally for myself. What, what did you learn about writing action? Because that is one of the things that works so well in here is that like bodies in space it's always very clear in a scene and it needs to be because yeah. often this action is unfolding very quickly and rapidly do you have any like uh quick tips oh, hot God. takes do you want me to come back to that um oh I'd... No, I want to say editing again. Um, yeah. I got a lot of help, you know, like I workshopped some of those scenes and people would come back to me and sort of say to me, hang on, is she still on the stairs there? Because, you know, that kind of thing. Like, um, I think if you just have one note off with that stuff, it throws it throws everything off. Um, but mostly I think it's just cutting, isn't it? It's trying to, trying to come in as late as you can and then get out when it's done. And, and again, that's probably where trying to keep... I think I just kept pulling words out, you know. And I, uh, somebody also said to me they don't want to know particularly how someone feels in these scenes and that made a lot of sense to me. I I kind of think... Although at the same time there's only so many ways you can describe somebody's breathing or their heart rate, you know, before you feel like you're in a Mills and Boone kind of thing. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that, that keeping it in a way, not deadpan, but it's just happening and I'm not feeling much about it until there's a point then you have to give people a... A breathing point where they can, where they can stop and and feel something, you know, even if you're trying to. But even then, maybe observing it from outside, because I did have someone who was quite a a shut down character, um, for quite a lot of the book. So even when, even though she could have perhaps expressed her terror or her rage or whatever, she often wouldn't quite. So I had to somehow just find ways to show it. Don't know. It's really hard. I did get a tip to read um, Lee Child, yeah. Child or Childs, and I, I did. I yeah. I mean, I think there's just so many people who do it really well. Like, you know, there's some crime writers who do it fantastically, and you know. So we've talked about people like Denise Minor. You know, I love Tana French. People like that who can really pack that sort of punch. I I'm, I'm dying to ask if it helps having done performance and improvised kind of ways, if that has taught you anything about character? Yeah, maybe in the sense that um, people physically, when they're not trying to act, when they're not trying to perform a certain thing, they don't usually do what you would expect. Mm. Do you know what I mean? If they're trying to enact something, they'll usually go through, oh, well, what are the obvious ways that you do this? But, um, but I, I did have that... I think even from doing things like neutral mask, you know, sort of mask work where you, mm. you know, there's different kinds of masks and the neutral mask is supposed to be the one where you you can project, there's nothing on the mask and so you can project anything on the mask and you do it with your body or the audience does it, you know, like the reader does it. Um, I think all of that makes me pay attention to bodies and 
and dynamics, I suppose, mm, physical mm, dynamics. Yeah. I'd never really thought about it. But, yeah, like, I, I guess so. Um, I mean, I was really – I loved writing the scenes. You know, there's a few – there's a group that is probably the closest thing Lee gets to family or whanau. It's like this group called the Mosquitoes um, who are just like this quite dysfunctional collection of – it's like a dysfunctional family um, – and I loved writing the dynamic of those people. You know, just it's like, okay, we get a really short amount of time with these people. How much can I show or how much can I suggest? And people might not be interested. They might just want to keep going and find out what the action is. But there are a couple of people like that. Rich, who's a, a character who sort of recurs in the book, mm. who's a, a friend, becomes a, a friend for Lee. She gets a friend. Um, there were a couple of people like that that I... I Want, really wanted to bring back, really wanted to spend a bit more time with and, and so I did. But most of the time it was just every encounter has to first of all break up, break it up if it's getting a bit boring mm. um, and then also do something useful like impart some information about Lee or about the world or, you know, just all of that sort of stuff. And then what else? What else can I do? And I, there are a couple of, I'm not going to say which, but there are one or two where I feel like I didn't pull that off where they just were a bit too functional. But mostly it's just that chance to sort of go you know, pull on things you've seen or on the bus or, or whatever and just kind of push them into someone that, that you meet. And as far as what you said about the kind of the weight or the freight of those encounters, I think also it's just it's the world of the book is that it is a kind of transactional mm. world mm. and also communication is incredibly limited in all sorts of ways. You know, no one's hardly anyone's got phones, they're not smart very few people have a car or petrol to put in it. You know, people... It's There's newspapers again, but they're local newspapers, so it's all kind of feudal in that way. And so when you meet someone, the chance that you're going to meet them again is, especially if everyone's on the move trying to get somewhere, the chance of meeting again is really, really slight. Mm. And so that gives its own sort of weight to encounters, I think, mm. that perhaps in some ways people want to give a bit more, which maybe comes back to that idea of kindness, you know. That you, in a world like that, you get limited chances to to be kind or to or to have a conversation that's not entirely about where can you get water from next or did you hear whether we can get in behind that wall, you know. So when people get to do that, um, it just felt like it had a sort of a weight and a, and people were hungry for it. Mm. One of the things, as you're talking, one of the things that again I love about the book is this idea of communication. It really respects gossip, if you know what I mean. Like, it really respects, you know, face-to-face, -face, passing on information, making decisions in the moment about how much you pass on. And I'm wondering if there's anything you can pass on about how to signal when information is trustworthy or not trustworthy, especially when it's sort of coming through Lee, yeah. who is often suspicious of the communication. I think with a lot of these things, it's just sort of hard and you do it wrong and then you mm. try and do it right mm. and then somebody reads it and goes, no, it's still wrong and then you, you know, or no, I saw that coming, you know. like that, It's that thing of trying to trying to have things in there that will wrong foot people or that they won't see coming. And there were a couple of characters where I where I knew, you know, you don't always know at, mm. when you're at the start, but where I knew, okay, this person's going to do something bad or this person's going to do something good, but we're going to think they're going to do something bad. And how can I sort of sow that seed of confusion or uncertainty in the reader? And I suppose because Lee's default up until a certain point in the book um, is that in every encounter, okay, well, what do they, what do they want? And, you know, there's a point, you know, when she meets the truck driver, you know, there's this point where someone 
she she has an encounter on the road and she spends the whole time <laughs> trying to work out how she can trade, how she can trade and what she can trade and she just gets herself in deeper and deeper and makes it worse and worse. <laughs> and and at some point she goes, oh, maybe he doesn't want anything. <laughs> and it's this weird idea, you know. And I, I sort of felt like, I mean, for me when I read that scene, it just kind of makes me laugh at her expense and I kind of assume that the reader's having a little bit of a laugh as well. Like, oh, come on. But at the same time, you try to set up, you know, guy in a truck, no one around, you know, plenty of reasons in your past to be afraid of a situation like that. And, um, yeah, and so I think... I think sometimes it's just going back and looking at it again and trying to work out what the signals are that mm. you gave and whether you can temper the signals a little bit if you've got a character who's kind of going to read things one way until they get hit over the head with the other way. Mm. Um, and where that really happens to Lee, I think, is in transit where mm. she has to stop mm. and she can't do anything and she just has to sort of accept things that happen to her. When I read a book, I forget that it goes through phases, if you know what I mean, and, like, this this idea that it doesn't come birthed fully... You know, like, um, and I really appreciate that. Like, I think that, um, yeah, I just really appreciate that idea and just want to, yeah, that idea of editing, editing, editing. Yeah, I, I like that. We get a second chance at it, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, and like third, fourth, fifth chance. As, <laughs> as long as no one's waiting for it, you know, you're just kind of writing it in your room. <laughs> it's so good. Um, One thing I was really loving in the book as well is this idea of a decision to... Um, and I'm thinking about Bolaño a lot when I'm reading this book, this idea of lay this world over a continent that is relatively familiar, yeah. has something of Australia in it, has something of um, the connotation of Australia, the politics of Australia, the histories of Australia, but is not Australia. And you've spoken really well about why it isn't Australia. And... Yeah, I just I just wonder about this awesome awesome work of creating this world that has mountains and lakes and you know this this strange water thing that's happened through the middle of it, this liquid thing that's happened in the middle of it. And yeah, like I think I heard you say that at one stage you were thinking it was more a European kind of biome. I don't know. Yeah. Do you do, yeah. tell me about everything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's a lot to say about that, so I have to keep an eye on the time. Um, yeah, when I when I first because it because the idea of it in its sort of early stages was it was some kind of pilgrimage. Mm. Um, I wasn't sure. I thought for a while it might be the the kids, and then at some point maybe after I had a kid, I thought maybe it would be <laughs> the parent. You know, um, and I you know I wasn't sure, but I think because it, I had this idea of pilgrimage, and I had a very Catholic upbringing, and and pilgrimage was a big thing mm. in my you know consciousness. And and that was a European idea in my head, and so and also I wanted um, I wanted some really specific things. I wanted a sea crossing. I wanted a, a mountain crossing. You know, I wanted a a, a landmass that had the potential for lots of borders. Um, yeah, and so I, I sort of just thought it'll be some kind of version of a kind of European place. Yeah. And then when I started to write it, and we did some exercises at the start of that year, um, and I used every single exercise. I made every single one about the book. You know, I didn't, <laughs> I just didn't, didn't do anything else. It was all about the book. But um, they all came out really Australian. And I was like, oh, you know, it wasn't intentional. Um, but, of course, when you do things like that, it's never just one thing. And, and I sort of resisted that. Because I immediately thought, well, if it's Australia, then it's Australia, and then there's 
it can't be a pretend version. The, the distances will all be set and I'll have to... Yeah, it was going to tie me down in ways that I didn't want to be tied down. But it helped. It was helping me write. The Australianness of it was helping me to write it. And and so I had conversations about that with, with Emily, with my supervisor, and she just said, well, do whatever, you know, do whatever helps you write. <laughs> so I did that. And then at a certain point I thought, oh, well, I can just get away with it. I can have both. And so I... I had some ideas about Australia. I'd seen some images of Australia, projected ideas, you know, a long way into the future where it's eroded all the way around and the bite has kind of come up and um, it's a much smaller place and much more sort of fragile. And I also, you know, was thinking about that great inland sea back way, way a long time ago. And I've spent time at, at Katitanda, at Lake Eyre, and, and, you know, I've spent time at, at some, of, some of these places that were really strong in my head, particularly sort of Arabana country, which is kind of on the west of that of that lake. So in a way, the geography was my structure. The ge I had a kind of a map that was sort of weirdly like a rope, you know, so, okay, I'm going to have... I'm going to have a camp here and then she's going to camp by a salt lake here and then I want to have a, a sort of a labour camp that's in an abandoned airport and I want to have a mountain crossing. And I kind of pulled myself through that way. Um... But I cheated a lot. I mean, <laughs> the distances are all over the place, you know. I mean, I, I mean, they're not like, you know, it's very carefully worked out by hand on pieces of paper and, you know, I mean, I, it, it, but I would be concerned... If somebody read it thinking it was Australia, they'd be very confused. <laughs> um, and some of that was just about... Well, it was about the idea that the continent has is smaller and there's a lot fewer people. Um, but also about how far you can walk, <laughs> you know. <laughs> In a day or in a week, especially if you hurt your foot or whatever. So there was all those kind of things. I did have this funny thing where um, I really wanted a water crossing. Um, and so I, I start them in the west of the country and then they cross to the east of the country and there's this this gulf. And I had sort of quite late in the piece, I had some pushback, very firm pushback on that idea. And I was asked whether I understood that there was actually no water crossing between Western Australia and the rest of the country. And I said I, I did. Um, and 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 um, and it was going well. People are going to think you don't know that. And I, I sort of thought about that for a while. And I thought, well, I, I, I can't help that, you know. I kind of <laughs> so um, and so. In the end, I put a little note in the front saying, "This book's Australian, but it's not Australia." And I've changed some things, which I, I mean, I thought was probably obvious. But but the thing is, I just I wanted them to cross water, so I I, I put water there. But but also, it turned into this kind of funny Western Australian joke because. Um, <laughs> You know, I, that part of where I grew up um, does feel very separate. And and at one point I, I looked up, I thought, well, I've been away for a while. Maybe it's changed. And so I looked something up and I found that um, there was a poll, you know, it was sort of COVID times or whatever. There was some poll and something like 78% of people in Perth or whatever thought that we should secede, which was higher than the last time I'd looked. <laughs> and they actually had an image, like a graphic with that, which showed th th that bit cut off and some water in between, which, if you think about the landmass from an Aboriginal perspective, is very bizarre. But, you know, like, that's how they show it. You know, here, we've just got this slice and we'll move it on. So I actually sent that image to to the people and went, I don't know, I think it's OK. Like, <laughs> <laughs> My God, that's genius. This is very strange, really, but but there was a there was a woman that I kept meeting walking my dog really early in the morning, the year I was riding it, and she had her dog. And I'd meet her on the hill and we would talk about books at sort of six o'clock in the morning, you know. And at some point I needed another... There's a few different truck drivers in the book and I just thought, oh, well, I'll put 
you know, I mean, and obviously it's not her, but I, you know, I put her and her dog, you know, in in there. Um, what never happens for me is I never get that thing where a, a character just introduces themselves to me. That has never happened to me. It's mm. always work. Mm. It's always really hard work. Mm. But, you know, I think there were specific roles I wanted people to fulfil and then I wanted to make those people as human as I could. And so once I knew that I needed somebody like Rich mm. in the book... Mm. Um, who is such a counter to Lee in, in almost everything, in the way he sees the world and his impulses and all that sort of stuff, in, although his experiences have maybe been quite similar. Um, you know, I based... I, I, there were people that I drew from to, to sort of make those people feel more real to me. And Matty, it's probably safe to say this because she's not here, but a lot of Matty's just taken straight from my my child. I mean, not also me, you know, it's also stuff that I, happened to me when I was a kid or that I did or said or, but yeah, just sort of ruthless exploitation. <laughs> <laughs> there were certain techniques, particularly around water extraction, that I practised not by digging massive holes, but, um, you know, I practised, tried out some evaporation techniques and things like that, you know, so that I knew I could describe them right. But um, I watched, I mean, I think, yeah, there's so many weird things on the internet. I, I watched a lot of videos of fathers and sons in the Australian sort of outback gutting and skinning kangaroos mm. and talking about it and sort of laughing awkwardly and stuff. Um, all kinds of weird things. You know, I, I, I found... Um, I found video... I ended up on a lot of survivalist websites. You know, it's that usual thing where you just think, oh, no, if somebody's tracking my... You know, <laughs> how you make bullets out of this or how you can convert... Can you convert the... the um, you know, the, can you put truck wheels on a ute? How You know, all, everything seemed to lead to... <laughs> ..weapon makers and survivalist websites, really. But, yeah, I don't know. And And then, of course, you take it all in and then you forget a lot of it, so... Don't rely on me in in those situations. But, you know, there were points where I felt like I could do it if I had to. <laughs> it's, interesting, it's interesting that Leah is such a good trapper and hunter, right? Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I don't eat... I haven't eaten meat since I was 12. Um, yeah, I... There's a number of things like that that were quite... N not in that way, but I think Lee is... Um, I mean, I would love to be more like her in many practical ways. Probably not in emotional ways, but um, in, yeah, in many practical ways I wish that I was more of that kind of person. So in some ways it's maybe wish fulfilment. But, um, yeah, I, I couldn't see... I, it's, this seemed to me to be a place where not many people would be eating any kind of processed meat. That seemed very logical. However, there would be a lot of roadkill and, um, and there would be a lot of feral animals and a smaller quantity of non-feral animals and, and that if you were able to kill them and eat them, you would. Um, yeah. And with this movement, any idea of sort of horticulture, you know, like gardening and, yeah, yeah. Is, yes. is gone. Yeah, very hard for people to grow things, you know. I mean, I, yeah, I did have, I mean, a lot of that sort of backstory again of how they grow the food and all that kind of thing, you know, it gets cut. Mm. But, um, yeah, but I did read, um, I was reading books like Dark Emu um, mm, by mm, Bruce Pascoe mm. and, and The Greatest Estate. You know, I was not not so much in the writing but during the editing. So, you know, about, about more sort of Aboriginal land management and growing practices. And I was able to kind of build a little bit of that in in that slightly optimistic sense that maybe at some point 
people en masse would kind of go, oh, that seems like a good idea, you know, because that stuff grows in this environment. So, you know, there's little bits and pieces like that. It's a sort of weird mixture. But, um, but yeah, I think there's a point where she gets offered a choice between a can of beans and a can of... There are certain beans. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, food's really... You wouldn't have a great time with the food, I don't reckon. <laughs> but you will have a great time with this book. Um, no, it's, it's a stunner. Thank you so much for your generosity. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I really, it, it's just, yeah, I feel extremely grateful to talk to you about this amazing book. So, yeah, um, thanks everyone um, for coming to this event. So, finally, if we can just have a final round of applause for Claire.